Okay. You've seen these before. There are two terms, posi positionally and experientially, and both reference one's either position or experience in relationship to something else. Positional, we talk about being in Christ and our position in Him is what sanctifies us. Experiential, we talk about being um, growing in our experience and our walk. So those theologically refer to salvation and spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, uh, as we've defined. By the way, if I go too fast, let me know, because I, I will. You can already tell I'm kind of excited. Um, so you'll probably hear me talk faster tonight than you have ever heard before. Did you have an energy drink? I have not had any. I never drink energy drinks. There's nothing to them. There's yeah. nothing. Yeah, nothing for it. This just excites me. There's a, and I don't know. It's fun. So uh, review of pisteos. Nothing new here. Complete dependency based on response. The relationship that we place. Uh, when we place our dependency upon something to accomplish something, uh, like sitting in a chair. Human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint is sight-based or perception-based, a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this human world system. And then divine viewpoint, which is faith-based or based upon a dependency that you have upon spiritual truth or um, God's word, those truths that operate in his world system. That should all be pretty familiar to us at this point. Um, we should be operating from divine viewpoint rather than human viewpoint. All right. Two weeks ago, I think we talked about the doctrine of positional truth as it related to salvation. And we said that it identified that any individual who believes on Jesus Christ is placed positionally in Christ by God. This is that upper circle. And then number two, because of the believer's position in Christ, he is holy and blameless before God. Uh, there's nothing about the individual's nature with that, just the identification that he is in Christ, and Christ's nature allows him to be holy and blameless. Number three, through his position in Christ, the believer's present-day act of sin becomes imputed to Christ on the cross in 30 AD. In other words, it gets charged as Christ having committed it. The penalty has been paid for, and thus the pardon has been effected, but the actual imputation occurs um, when the transgression is done. Number four, because of the Calvary Compact of 30 AD, the death and resurrection of Christ on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice, the believer does not have the ability to suffer spiritual death having been born of God. So again, when you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are made spiritually alive. That spirit is no longer able to be killed by sin because your sin is imputed to Christ, and he's paid the penalty, which is death for that sin. So is that what you hear when churches refer to imputed righteousness? Yeah. Yeah, as his righteousness is written down as if it's ours, and our sin is written down as if, it, as if it's his. Yeah, To impute means to uh, record, or to, um, it's not write down, but that's the concept. It's to record or give or transfer one thing that was someone's to another person. Good question. The doctrine of foot washing is what we discussed last week, and hopefully, if you weren't here, you got a chance to look at the slides. Um, there were a large, all seven, Seven people looked at the slides uh, according to the website stats, so uh, hopefully you were a part of that party if you missed it last week. Um, the doctrine of foot washing. I was checking. Did, it, did you guys get a chance to see it? I didn't. Okay. So I don't know who it is because there's seven people that just randomly out of nowhere are watching us. So. Oh, it could be. I don't know. Could be. I don't know. I haven't talked to him since yeah, I didn't check to see where it came from. I just noticed yeah. there were there were seven. So I, I was kind of hoping it was us. 
24 hours a day, so he doesn't have very much to do. So. Right. <laughs> it's that time of year for him, huh? Yep. All right, so the doctrine of foot washing, uh, which is kind of a cloaking, cloaking term for um, confession of sin, uh, we get from John chapter 13 where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, and he says to Peter that you've been completely cleansed already. You do not need to be completely cleansed again. All you need is to have your feet washed um, and to clean the part of you that is dirty. Um, there's an interchange between two Greek words. One means to wash entirely and clean the entire body in the sense that take a bath and you bathe your entire body. The second is that um, you wash a portion or a part. And there's those different distinctions between the two words. Um, again, it's a whole study in and of itself. But Jesus, when he washed the disciples' feet, set up this concept of foot washing as a part of the believer's life. Um, it, it operates upon these two premises. One that once an individual has been completely cleansed, he no longer needs complete cleansing. Question? I'm just going to text your mom that says, please turn Dr. Turner up. Are you streaming? No. Okay. How does she know? She has no, she has, yeah, we're not live here, so okay, don't worry about that. I can guarantee you that. So apparently we found out who the seven hits are, my grandparents in Southern California. All right. Hi, Ma. Hi, Papa. Maybe they want you to record it. Yeah. Reminding you at the time. It's possible, but that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> All right. It's just not practical. I've already tried. Number two, the doctrine of foot washing relies upon the premise that when the believer's feet get dirty because of sin, he needs to wash them before he can have any further fellowship with Jesus and God. The concepts relied around the Roman bathhouse. And that your concept would be that you would need a bath, you would go to the bathhouse, you would disrobe, you would wash, and you'd come back. By the time you get back, your body remains clean, but your feet were dirty because of the sandals you wore along the path. So you would wash your feet. That's why partly um, the bathhouse and then just the culture of the day, having the foot washers and the servants washing the feet or the host washing the guests' feet when they arrived was to cleanse their feet from the traveling. We travel where we ought not to at times as believers. In fact, more times than not. Our job is to cleanse our feet. We don't need to be completely cleansed again, according to John chapter 13, because we've already been completely cleansed. But the foot washing needs to be accomplished. Jesus says to Peter in verse 8 that if... Actually, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Okay, so upon salvation, the believer enters into what is called fellowship with God. After he's been completely cleansed, he now has fellowship. Fellowship is a term derived from the Greek word koinonia, which refers to having a share in something with another. The concept is that you're an equal partner in work or in, in, in an endeavor with another. You share it and there's an equality there. An interesting concept considering we're talking about God and man. It expresses the concept of equal partnership and the sharing of benefits and rewards. So it's um, communal work that you share equally in the partnership, the work, the benefits, and the rewards. Jesus told Peter in John 13, 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. That word part comes from the Greek word meros, and it means the allocated portion due a partner. Um, Jesus here is not referring to salvation. He doesn't use the word that references a complete washing. He uses the word that, refers, that represents a partial washing. Um, and so we know because of that that it's not talking about salvation, but Peter is being this being talked to about partnering in Jesus's work. Jesus's work was and is the Father's work, and so Peter's work is a share and a portion within the will and the work of the Father. And you can cross-reference Luke 2.49, John 4.34, and John 9.4 to identify Jesus's work being his Father's, and therefore, as believers, ours being God's work as well. We partner with God through Jesus to make that happen. Any questions on that part? Isn't Jew like 
Want me to redo it again? Basically, yeah. Yeah, what God wants us to do is, is his work. And again, this is kind of a summary of, of last week's. So there's, there's a lot more in-depth in last week's notes um, and audio. So, Okay. When the believer accepts Jesus as the Christ, he is bathed completely. Even the perfect, or the perfect tense is always used in reference to salvation. Um, well, I, I said that, I made that statement last week. The perfect tense is always used in reference to the concept of salvation. Uh, the aorist tense is used in a perfect tense way. So you may, if you look, find aorist imperfect, but the concept is that they produce the same result. The only time the aorist is used is when it's referring to a complete action that's taken out of time and perpetuated forever so they can never be undone. Um, so you've got perfect tense being a complete action results continuing on. The aorist is its almost exact similar concept in that uh, aspect. So um, it's a complete action with results that continue. Or it's an action in a point in time that that point in time is actually removed from the timeline so that it can never be affected by time again. So you've got this completed action with results that continue that concept. Um, so you will always, without any question or doubt in my mind, you will always find that in reference to salvation. You never find um, in the present tense of a continuous act. You never find anything about a future act that has yet to be accomplished that may work or what may not work. It's always the concept that it's a done deal and it's set aside. It's not going to be changed. So with that extra free commentary out of the way, during the believer's daily life, which is what we're talking about with foot washing, and walk with God, his feet get dirtied by sin. Sin separates the believer from fellowship with God. Until the believer's feet are washed, he shares no fellowship or partnership with God. We cannot have fellowship light with darkness. So part two, question? Is it okay if I ask you a question? Yeah, it's okay. Okay. Not anymore, never mind. So my question is, well, I see the parallel, and I think that that's cool. And so the other alternative in my head makes me want to ask it just to make sure I understand. Um, so God, the way you're explaining it, God is, is using our, the foot washing idea as our, our renewed fellowship with him, keeping ourselves experientially. And I think that makes sense. The other alternative I thought of was, though, that it could also be like communion, where, no, we don't need to be washed again. We're washing and it was as a reminder, the same way communion was a reminder of our salvation. Um, there, so it's symbolism as opposed to that the reason for um, communion being an ordinance and foot washing not being an ordinance is that aspect the difference between teaching and symbolism communion symbolizes the body of Christ and the relationship we have because of it the blood giving us the cleansing of our sins and now now being able to have a relationship with God and then the bread representing his body which is broken for us so while we do that as an ordinance foot washing isn't an ordinance in that sense and I'm getting well, to, I'm getting to the point of answering like questions so foot washing wasn't something that the, the church ever recognized or that we ever have a command to do um, other than when Jesus makes a statement that if I've done this for you, you should also do this for each other. He's not saying wash each other's feet every time you see each other. What he's identifying is an attitude of service towards one another that says if I, the Lord, and this was Peter's complaint too, is that you're the Lord, you shouldn't be washing my feet, I should right. be washing yours. You know, you're not even worthy, I'm not even worthy to have your feet touch my feet. And that if Jesus says if I'm the Lord, you should be willing to do this for each other. So that's uh, the, the foot washing story in John chapter 13 deals with those three concepts of the attitude of servitude and then be, with the interchange between the two different Greek words there and with him telling Peter, you know, what I'm doing, you're not going to understand until just hereafter. Well, that hereafter is the point after the cross. Well, now he realizes I've got a relationship with God that needs to have my feet cleansed. So there's, it's, it's almost a parable in that sense of teaching, 
um, but it's not an ordinance like we would follow with communion. It seemed like Galatians gave in communion was similar, like you said, whatever you drink, you will remember communion. Yeah. It's more of a whatever uh, throughout life, but it seems like it's a similar commandment as the commandment of worship. And communion that night was a special night. That night was the Passover feast. Right. So it was, it's something that every year they were going to be doing. So I kind of question, too, just our practice of it. I mean, different churches do it at different times. But when he makes a statement, you know, every time you do this, remember me and think of me. It's kind of like, you know, this is every time you come to the Passover meal concept, except that the Passover meal is going to be taken care of at the completion of the law, fulfillment of the law. So it's kind of an interesting thing, and that's why churches just historically have done it whenever they feel like it to a degree, you know, where it's not that it's so rare that you never get anything out of it or you never observe it, but it's not so frequent that it's meaningless also as a ritual. So foot washing isn't an ordinance in that sense, although some churches believe it is, but it's never been commanded, it's never been observed by the, the major body of Christ. Um, but it is something that as a believer we're, we're commanded to do. Um, and again, the notes for last week were a little going to be a little more, more clear in the background of that. Did that answer your question enough to... Uh, sure. Okay. Wow. Well, yeah, we've got what, 16 more slides, so I, we'll do that. Okay. All right, so the, the process we said we would talk about um, this week, uh, instead of just identifying the, the, the need for it and the, the believer confessing his sin and washing the, the dirt off of his feet, um, and we identified that that process would take place in 1 John 1, 9, um, which we know is the believer's confession of sin to God. Um, before we... Oh, let me read the verse, I guess. First um, John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, last week I made the statement that we will kick off our genomize um, from tonight on, uh, so long as I remember to do so, um, without it being a ritual, with about 30 seconds of being able to confess any sin to God alone, and not, not to us, obviously, but to God alone through prayer, um, so that we can get back in fellowship with God. That, that will make more sense by the end of the night, but I do want to start that concept tonight as just if, if there's anything in your, um, in your life that you know is a sin, and the Bible says that when we confess it to God, that He restores us because of His faithfulness and righteousness. He restores us to that fellowship. Um, so whether it's a mindset or an action or just disbelief of, of who God is or what God's promised, any of those things are going to separate us from God and, and cause our feet to get dirty. So let's take about 30 seconds or so, um, and just personally in, in your own, um, the privacy of your own priesthood, um, go ahead and if, there's, if you need to confess any sin, I would encourage you to do so now. You don't have to. That's between you and God, obviously. Um, part of the reason for this is that we cannot spiritually discern or understand the things of God unless we're in fellowship with Him. Um, so we'll get through the rest of our study as, as soon as we finish this process. And in about 30 seconds, I'll actually pray for all of us corporately, not for the confession of sin, but just for tonight's study. So go ahead and take about 30 seconds or so for yourself, and I will do the same. Father, we're grateful for your grace and for the 
relationship that we have because of your son. We pray that we would be worthy of the life that he lived and the death that he died for us, that we would not focus on ourselves or on the different things that we go through in this life. Father, you know our days, you know our thoughts, you know our hearts. May they be submitted to you and may we be able to trust and and willing to serve you throughout the different circumstances we face. Father, if there's anything that's hindering us, whether it be sin or whether it be just a hard hard day or tiredness from, if any of those things are hindering us from understanding your will or your word tonight, I pray that you would protect us from ourselves and from those things and from Satan and company as we attempt to embark on this study of what fellowship with you looks like and the need for it and the process of it. May you guide us and teach us through your Holy Spirit. And thank you for the teaching ministries that he provides to us and in our spirits as well. And thank you for the fellowship that we can have through your son and may we choose to take advantage of that and live in the relationship you designed us to do, to live within. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so 1 John 1, nine is what we'll be focusing on tonight as the process, but let me give you a little bit of background information first. In John's first epistle, which is where we're looking at tonight, he identifies a problem between two highly debated teachings at the time of his writing. These teachings and the debates surrounding them are a part of today's theological world as well. Um, we know them under a different concept. But one of the teachings is known as antinomianism. Antinomianism is a term derived from the Greek word anomia, which means lawlessness um, or against law. And antinomianism is a philosophical belief that there is no law by which humanity is governed. Um, this is a part of multiple worldviews. If you're an atheist, a theist, an agnostic, you can have this concept that there is no law by which man is to be governed. Man is just a, a chemical that, or in a body that has chemicals firing, that he has nothing to judge him, or he can't be responsible for his actions, whatever. But within a theistic worldview, there is also this concept of antinomianism, uh, which John dealt with, and this is part of what why he writes chapter one and chapter two of First John. Um, so antinomianism, again, is a belief philosophically or, or a worldview or mindset that there is no law by which humanity is governed. Um, so there's no responsibility for actions needed to be taken or possessed. There's no law, therefore all things go. This was a part of the world and the culture that was going on there. Um, theistically, it, or theologically, it actually relates to grace, which is kind of ironic, if you ask me, but... Uh, because of grace, many in John's day were of the mindset that their actions were not judged or evaluated any longer according to God's standard of righteousness. If grace exists, then the, what guilt or um, penalty for our sins is necessary? None, because God's grace has taken care of it. The thought was founded on the provision of, of grace by God, which covered all sin. If all sin was covered, the, covered, then there was no longer any need for a law or standard by which to evaluate the believer's action. So if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you're scot-free. You don't have to worry about anything. From there on out, there's no law to be governed. That's antinomianism on a theistic <coughs> worldview. Does that sound right to some of you guys? Yes. Says the pastor's wife. <laughs> <coughs> Paul dealt with this teaching as well in Romans 6, honey, when he asked, Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? His response is, and, or was and is, may it never be. Grace never gives us license to sin. It gives us freedom to start again. As is John's response in his first epistle, while grace does set and keep the believer free from sin, it does not abolish the standard of sin which God created and that righteousness which God has established. There remains a law by which believers are judged. 
there is just no law by which believers are sinned to hell. Judge is kind of one of those words that we typically think of either passing a sentence or evaluating action. There's two different Greek words in, in, in the Bible used for those two, two different concepts. Um, by which believers are judged down there, we're identifying the sent to hell concept. Uh, or the, the non-sin to hell concept, the concept that we are, our works are evaluated. Okay, so in addressing theistic antinomianism, if you want to turn to John, or verse John chapter 1, we're going to be going through about 10 verses here, just reading them. Um, in addressing this, John proclaims, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John 1, 5-7. John continues his message in verse eight through, verses 8-10, through 10, saying, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us harsh terms. Then in 1 John 2 verses 1 through 11, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. One eight through ten. We pretty much went through verses five through the end of chapter one, and then chapter two, <coughs> verses one through three. And then also Jesus said to them, not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Jesus said that where can't remember his name, but the guy who went to the black thing that was the big confusion that no one went to hell. Is that where they got? I didn't read that book because. I knew the guy who wrote it, and I wasn't too... Yeah, it was Rob Bell. And I haven't been too fond of him since about 2003. But that's just my own personal views and opinions towards his theology and his uh, ministry approach. But I don't know, because I didn't read it, realistically. Um, it sounded pretty bogus, the advertising for it. So it we, we showed it at camp as, this is the crazy stuff that's going on out there. Yeah. And it, it, it sounds very correct. I've wanted to read it, but I'm not sure that I will bring myself to do so, just because... <laughs> It was so estranged by even liberal modern theologists or theologians that I was kind of like, I don't even need to, to evaluate it at this point. If they've done that work for me, then I know it's got to be pretty uh, outrageous in some of the statements. So I don't know if this is where he got that from. Um, it seems like it was more off of a loving concept from the, the part that God can't send anyone to hell if he really loves them, that kind of thing, which is the same statement Satan can be made if you harmonize scripture, but that's a different story. Go ahead. Could that be a reference instead if John is writing to Jews to say that he's saying, but also for those of the whole world who is going to help. Yeah, and specifically believing Jews is who he's talking to. Right. So, yeah, it's believing Jews and then Gentiles and the unsaved at this point. It's not just us who are believing and us who are believing Jews, but the whole world. Um, he, he is that propitiation. So. There's a, a whole lot of doctrine in those eight verses or whatever yeah. it is. There's a whole lot there. I kind of wanted to just do a side study on that, but we're already doing a side study of a side study, so we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> We are in James. This is our big parenthetical okay. to give us a background to go into the next set. Because this, this stemmed from, um, and in fact, I didn't do our, our model there. You have a question? No. 
Oh, this stems from the question that arose from James chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, about how if a believer sins, does that mean he need to be saved again if the penalty for sin is death? So we kind of spurred off that and dealt with the positional, old truth side of things. And this, so this is our parenthetical study that is also foundational for spiritual living and probably should have been done before we entered into James in the beginning. So God brought it back to surface. I said, okay, fine, we'll do it. I just try to do what I'm told. All right. So theistic antinomianism on the basis of the grace provision of God fails to ascertain a correct teaching regarding the believer's life and relationship to the God of the universe. It simply fails to understand and know God. We get that part from that last part, in, or last verse in 1 John 2, 1-3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we, can, if we keep his commandments. If we don't know God, we will not keep his commandments. It's that simple. And if we say that we know God and are not keeping his commandments, the truth is not in us. A hybrid of two verses, but the principles are the same thing. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. I think this is part of the reason that David says, Be still and know that I am God. Or Psalm 37 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Those concepts of us stopping and trying, stopping from doing what we're doing and recognizing who God is, because that should be the foundation of it. It's also the reason we're doing a winter camp for our youth group that deals with who God is. <laughs> Alright. Keeping God's commandments is a direct result of knowing God, not abusing His grace. And so, as any good partnership requires, knowledge of the partner is imperative and foundational to a successful partnership. We are partakers and partners in God's work. Uh, equal, Equally so, according to the definitions of the Greek words used. God has elevated us to that status of adults in his family able to discuss and um, communicate with him the plan and the work that he has and put our input in in a submitted relationship to him we are partners and in that sense we need to know who our partner is we can't be doing our partner's work if we don't know him and what he wants to partner with God or to walk in fellowship those are terms that I'm going to use kind of simultaneously um, or not simultaneously, but we'll switch them in, in and out. Um, interchangeably, thank you. To partner with God or to walk in fellowship is the calling of each believer. It is only in partnership with God that the believer is able to produce good works in harmony with the partnership God has created through his Son. We work because Jesus allows to in the power of the Holy Spirit in submission to God the Father. That partnership allows us to do good work. When we are outside that partnership, we do not produce good works. They are human good and therefore are wood, hay, and stubble. Question? Okay. Not yet, but I may take you up on it. So when disharmony occurs through sin, whether from disbelief, Willful, dis willful disobedience or ignorance, it must be removed through the process of foot washing or confession of sin. In doing so, the partnership is able to be once more restored to harmonious fellowship, and the work may then continue. Until that disharmony is removed, fellowship is impossible. Fellowship stems from this commonality that you are partners working together towards the same end. If you have a disharmony between the, the process or the way things are working or even the morals surrounding the work workplace, you are not going to have harmonious fellowship and the work will not continue properly. We match God, God does not match us. Key to remember. It's God's God's plan. 
God's standards and we match him. And if we don't match him, then we are in disharmony with him. He is never in disharmony with us. That's what I mean. All right. The process, is, process prescribed for foot washing is identified in 1 John 1, 9. It is known as the believer's confession of sin to God. Extra information, okay? There, there's, there's a passage, and I think it's in Acts, where it says that the call for the elders and to confess sins to one another. That isn't talking about confessing your, your sin daily to others. What, it, what it's referring to is that the, the elders are called to pray over the situation, and it's when there's known sin in the believer's life, it's going to be tough to explain right now because there's a lot of background information there. But it's not a command to confess your sin one to another. We don't sin against each other. We don't need to share our sin with each other because if we share our sin with each other, we're actually going to hinder each other in a lot of ways. That doesn't mean you can't share your struggles or that God won't use your struggles to teach someone else. But that, again, has to be within the relationship you have with God. The, the confession of sin is to God alone through Christ alone. That's how it works. Me confessing sin to Jamin doesn't do any of us either good, any good. It changes the way he views me, changes me the respect, that kind of stuff, which shouldn't be a matter of pride for me or contingent of pride for me, but it, it's not between him and me, it's between me and God. So we when we talk about this concept, foot washing isn't for each other, it's for the believer in God. So just keep that in mind um, as we go on, and we'll be okay, I guess. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In humilagomen tes hamartias. John begins to describe the process by creating a hypothetical situation. The word in means if in Koine Greek. It's one of two words that is translated as if in English, but it's one of four types of if statements that are available to the writer in Koine Greek. These are awesome. Uh, I can produce a chart and highlighting of every time the word is if is used in my Bible program that shows me whether it's first, second, third, or fourth. It really changes the way you, you see things. We're going to deal with the third class here, um, which is possible reality of the statement. You can see t at the end of the, the first line of each one, there's a parenthesis, and then it says I, I, in, and I. I is all the same word. In is the only one different. So there's your two words, I and in. The first one, if it's used with indicative, will be reality. Um, the second one, if it's used with a, a different uh, Greek grammar, is going to show that it's not a reality. Um, the third one is showing, well, maybe it's going to be reality, maybe it's not. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't kind of thing. If, maybe we'll do this, maybe we won't. That's the one we're going to deal with tonight. And the fourth one is that if I wish it were true, but it's not. So the first three are, are more, are the one, two, and four are difficult to kind of discern um, if you don't have the grammar because they use the same word. But anytime you see that word in in Greek, it's if, maybe it's reality, maybe it's not. So it creates that kind of hypothetical. Maybe you're going to do this, maybe you're not. Maybe this happened, maybe it didn't. We don't really know. There's no statement as to whether it did occur or probability towards its occurrence. So we're dealing with number three tonight, possible reality of the statement by Ian. If, and maybe it's reality, maybe it's not. John uses that third conditional if to begin his statement. This introduces a hypothetical situation, one which also may be reality but isn't necessarily just because of the words used. So in essence, you may do this, but you may not do this. It's not necessarily that you will, but it's not necessarily that you won't. There's no inference there. It's just whether you do or you not, there's gonna be something else going on. 
Okay. And again, we get that from the third class conditional if. Because John uses the third class by using Ian plus the subjunctive mood in homologomen, he creates the understanding that the believer may or may not confess their sins. So he's literally saying, if, maybe it will be reality, maybe not, we confess our sins. Or, if we confess our sins, maybe we will, maybe we won't. And then he gives us another statement from there. So, the choice to confess resides within the, the God-provisioned volition of the believer. In other words, God gave us the volition, our choice is to use that volition to confess or not. Whether or not the believer utilizes that volition to confess their sin is the choice of the believer. This is John's identification. Maybe the believer will, maybe the believer won't. We might confess, we might not. The confession of sin is expressed through the active subjunctive form of homologeo, uh, which is where we get homologomen from. It is a compound verb, which literally means to speak the same. It has come to mean to agree. Uh, it's a compound word. Homo means same. Legeo meaning to speak or proclaim. So when you speak the same, you're proclaiming, proclaiming the same thing, is the inference in the Greek language. We would need another word at the end of to speak the same, um, or to speak, or to agree on something. We'd need, we would need some sort of subject that we're agreeing on, but the inference is there in the language itself. So it, kind of, it means to agree, basically, but literally it's to speak the same thing, to speak the same. So to agree with someone, when they say this, you speak the same. It's the same thing you're agreeing upon. <clears throat> by using the subjunctive mood, John is identifying the possibility possessed by the believer, which is the subject of homologomen, to speak the same or agree. So you have the possibility to speak the same or to not speak the same. Again, that fits with if, maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you speak the same, maybe you will, maybe you won't. It's a, uh, a harmony there between the two uh, grammatical subjects. The mood in Koine Greek establishes the atmosphere of an action, kind of like you set mood lighting. Um, we've got these great little LED candles, so we can put them right in front of our TV and set some mood for Ginnamai without worrying about them burning the TV up or the walls or anything like that. Um, the candle in the bathroom is not LED, so don't put your hand in it or anything like that. There are four types of mood in Koine Greek. We're dealing here with the fourth one, which is probably one of the most rare. Um, the optative is probably the rarest, but number four is probably a close second, if not the first rarest. Um, homologomen is in the subjunctive mood, and this identifies it as a possibility. There's no identification whether something's probable here. We're not talking about probability. We're talking about just potential, possibility. You have the possibility to do this, or to do that, or not to. Okay? So because of that being used with homologomen and in, the uh, subjunctive mood is expressing that the confession is, is a possibility, again, making no emphasis or mention on the probability of whether or not that confession will take place. Therefore, John is not identifying the probability of whether the believer will confess, but rather that the believer has the possibility to confess. You may or you may not. Getting sick of that may or may not concept yet? It's coming up more, so get used to it. Coupled together with Ian, John identifies his statement as being hypothetical. But he's also identifying it as being possible. His statement is therefore more accurately understood based upon the grammar, to be if, maybe we will, maybe we, we won't, speak the same or agree. The object which the believer has the possibility of speaking the same about is tas hamartios, which is literally the missings of the mark. It's plural, the sin. Um, they've translated it as our because of the word that follows hamartios, which is hamos or hemos. Um, we don't have it up there yet. <coughs> 
but it literally means the missings of the mark, the multiple missing of the same standard, the same mark. It shouldn't be anything new. We've talked about missing the mark being um, the bullseye and the standard of God's righteousness. Because of the accusative case used with tas hamartios, John identifies the missings of the mark of the believer to be the object which is agreed upon between the believer and God. So therefore, if we confess or speak the same about the sins of us, then we have the second part coming out later. The emphasis is not placed on the fact that sin occurred, but upon the sins which occurred. It's not if we confess that, yeah, we did sin. No, it's if we confess or speak the same on the sins that we committed. So, without getting legalistic here, think of the list of things that God says are wrong. When we speak the same or agree with Him on what is right and what is wrong, that's when we have this harmony that we're talking about, this fellowship. When we disagree with that, that's when we have disharmony or, di or don't have fellowship with God. That's what we have to do is we have to change when we sin. We have to agree with him on that being sinned, not on the fact that, yeah, we sinned. We know we sinned. God knows we sinned. But when we actually agree in our heart with the fact that that, was, that is sin and that it's sinful to do what we did and agree that it's not valuable and all the rest of the stuff that goes with that mindset of it, then we actually are submitting ourselves back to his plan and harmony with him rather than asserting our own um, own standard of righteousness. Does that make sense? So basically what we do when we disagree with God on what sin is, or when we sin and it's a part of our life, we're actually saying this isn't the standard of righteousness. We're actually disagreeing with God and causing conflict within that standard. So the confession of sin or the speaking the same, speaking the same about your sin is that agreeing with God on what sin is and that you had that sin in your life. Any questions on that real quick? Okay. That's good. Tashamartias is plural, and so John's statement encompasses the individual sins in the believer's life and not the sin nature possessed by the believer. Okay, so we're not talking about confessing that you have a sin nature. The believer has the possibility of speaking the same or agreeing with God on the sin which they commit. Again, the subjunctive mood, that third class in being there with if, the possibility that we have is because of the volition and the priesthood that we have. The fact that we can go straight to God without having someone else in the middle um, it is huge, and we didn't have that before Jesus died on the cross. But because of those two things, we have the possibility of agreeing with God on what he says is sin when we commit it. In the Greek text, the literal phrase is tas hamartias hemon, which literally rendered is the missings of the mark of us. <coughs> the genitive case with hemon identifies the believer to be the possessor of the sins or of the missings of the mark. So it's each individual believer, when you sin, you possess that sin, it is a part of your walk with God, not a part of your judgment by God. And we're separating the positional and the experiential concepts. John completes his protesis, which is the first part of an if-then statement. Uh, and in doing so, he identifies the first part to that if statement as being the believer is to... Let me just start over there. We'll start with the second one. It is this first part which the believer is to perform in order to reestablish fellowship. So therefore, we are, to, we are to confess the sins of us to God in order to restore an established fellowship. God's role is identified in the apodosis, or the then part of the if-then statement. Okay, you guys want to take a break? We okay? Okay. I'm going to take about two seconds. So... So we've set up this hypothetical already, right? Just to kind of recap on what we went through in a hurry. That 
there's a possibility that you will confess your sins or you will not. If you choose to do this, then what is coming that we're going to get to is what will follow through. So if we do choose to confess our sins, maybe we will, maybe we won't. But if we do choose to do so, God is faithful and righteous in order to cleanse us and forgive us of our sins. Okay. It's a misnomer in English. It's actually very amazing to me. And if you saw my Facebook status today about how amazing God's word harmonizes and stuff, I don't know if you did or not, but it's because of this. And when we get there, it's just amazing to see the harmony that God has, has just woven throughout his word. Okay, so if we confess the sins of us, which is our part, he is faithful and righteous. Instead of immediately identifying what happens when the believer confesses sin, John reminds the believer who God is. Remember that part about we went through in John, 1 John chapter 2, verses, verse 3, that says that when we know God, we keep his commandments? This is partly, by John, an encouragement and a reminder of who God is, so that the people will be encouraged to confess their sins. If we confess our sins, this is who God is. This is what he'll do. He doesn't start with, if we confess our sins, this is what God will do. He goes into, this is who he is, and thus he will do this. So instead of immediately identifying what happens when the believer confesses sin, John reminds the believer who God is first. The emphasis is a little more telling in the original order of the Koine Greek, which is pistos, esteem, kai, dikaios. Pissed off being faithful, esteem being he is, Kai being and, Dikaios being righteous. Sorry. <laughs> Pissed off, esteem, Kai, Dikaios? No? Public, I went to a public college. Sorry. <laughs> Homeschoolers. <laughs> John reminds believers that God is. I gotta be careful, there's a lot of you guys in here, huh? <laughs> yep. I think I saw your foot come up or something. It was kind of like. Oh. <coughs> That's true. You're mostly peaceful. Okay. Not quite Amish. <laughs> no mafia members in the house? You'll pray for me? Is that what it is? <laughs> Alright. It's a country song. Yeah. If you haven't heard it, I recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. It's shameful but humanly hilarious. All right. John reminds believers that God is faithful and righteous through the phrase pistos estis, which it should be esteem kai dikaios. Esteem is the Koine Greek word equivalent to the English words be, are, and is, um, the verb meaning to be. Some verbs are not action words. There's, they're identifying states of being or states of existence. So when we say this is, we're saying this is something. There's usually going to be a modifier that comes after that. Uh, we are doing something. We are this. We are that. That's saying that we exist in this state of being this or in the state of acting in this way. Um, to be or not to be, that's your equivalent here. So esteem means to exist in the state of being. And it's not. It's a verb, but it's not an action word like run or jump or skip. It means to exist. So I guess exist is your action word if you want. But it identifies the state of existence. Since esteem is in the indicative mood, John is identifying that God in reality exists in the state of being faithful and righteous. That indicative mood is our first one in our mood in Koine Greek, which again establishes the atmosphere of an action or state of being. Um, here we have that state of being, which is reality. So because esteem is in the, in the indicative mood, we have the identification that God really exists or in reality exists in the state of being something and something. God's existence as being faithful and righteous is not dependent, this is huge, upon the believer's confession of sin. 
in English, it, it could be misread, not necessarily predominantly, but it could be misread to be, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. But if we don't confess our sins, he's not faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. No, God is. He exists in reality in this state of being faithful and righteous. It's a part of who he is. And remember that when believers know God, they keep his commandments. God is faithful. God is righteous. When we know those two things, it's a whole lot easier to do what he says, right? Makes sense. We got it's a lot easier to do everything, just breathe and live in our, our typical life. To be faithful, which is pistos, means to be completely dependable. It's from pisteos, that's the verb form, to place a complete dependency upon something. This is the adjective, not the noun, but the adjective, which means to be completely dependable, or able to be depended upon. Pistos is an adjective used to describe God. God exists in the state of being completely dependable, or able to be depended upon. He also exists in the state of being righteous, dikaios. Dikaios is an adjective used to describe someone or something as being in complete conformity to God's plan. That may sound a little odd to think of God in conformity with his plan, but God exists in that complete conformity to his plan. He is not a tyrant. That, that politically speaking, has a bunch of firearms surrounding and protecting him and his daughters in their educational facility, but yet does not want them in your home. That is all I am saying. That is a done deal, so long as God can stop me. God's standard is the law under which all are judged, because God is sovereign, which means he reigns over all. His plan is the presiding standard and definition of justice. What he declares is just is his standard. It was an allusion to a modern-day occurrence in our current climate, politically. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's free of charge tonight. It might put me in jail, but that's all right. Therefore, because God reigns over all and his plans is the presiding standard and definition of justice, because of that, um, to be righteous or just, one must be in complete conformity to his standard, including him. If God is not in conformity to his standard, he is himself a sinner. Okay, which that doesn't work for us. We can't have a God who doesn't conform to his standard or his plan. God is a sovereign ruler who is in conformity with his own plan. This doesn't mean that God is bound by his plan. But it means that he, in his character, as sovereign and as righteous, is in conformity to his plan as a sovereign ruler. He is not some hypocritical tyrant which doesn't follow his own rules. God exists in complete conformity to his own plan. So he doesn't make a rule and then doesn't live by it. He makes it, sticks by it. Right? That's his plan. It's his rule because he is sovereign. Questions? Current day affairs? No, we don't have time for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, and basically, the king is not above the law. God is not above his plan. Well, we have a parallel in the relationship where the English are saying, well, God made the law for everyone, so even the king can use it, but also God creates the law and part of his nature then he Yeah. It's less. Because his law is, is, is loving and is perfect. He like, he fits within it. Yeah, it's kind of a, a mind warp at first, but once you flip it over, it kind of works. All right. So so far, John has established the believer that believers have the possibility of agreeing with God on their sin, and specifically on what sin is and the definition of it, and that they committed it. He has also identified that God, in reality, exists in the state of being completely dependable and in complete conformity to His own plan. These two truths exist independent of each other. I was pretty excited when we were typing this up, too. That is to say, 
that God's existence as being faithful and righteous does not depend upon the believer's confession of sin. We had the believer may or may not confess, yet God is this in reality, faithful and righteous. The two separate things. Now, because God is faithful and righteous, oh, okay, that word that wording confused me real quick on my own slide. If the believer confesses his sin, God is faithful and righteous. If the believer does not confess his sin, God is faithful and righteous. In other words, he is not dependent upon us confessing. He is and exists that way and always has and always will. However, John does identify God's faithfulness and righteousness as having a purpose towards the believer's confession of sin. Take that word purpose. Change it with all these words. John does, does identify God's faithfulness and righteousness as producing a result in reference to the believer's confession of sin. Okay, it's not God isn't righteous for a specific purpose. God is righteous because that's who He is. But the result of His righteousness and faithfulness produces something. So there's a result to it. You'll see that in just a second. Kina which per usually means in order that, depending on whether it's purpose, whether it's result, or whether it's an exegetical, exegetical substantival usage. It's not there. I just threw that in for fun. John uses the word hina as a conjunction, which expresses purpose or result to explain what God's faithfulness and righteousness does. In order that is the typical translation of hina. However, depending upon the context, its use may, be, may differ from purpose to result. To, uh, to translate it as purpose would be in order that. To translate it as result would be the result that or for, or resulting in, that kind of a thing. The two basic usages of hina provide similar understandings, yet both contain slightly different nuances. Here, hina is used as a conjunction of result. It's actually modifying the existence of God, so it's kind of an adverbial modifier there. So God exists in this way, and the result of his existence is this. God being faithful and righteous produces a result. So that's the state of being God exists in, and it because he exists that way, there's a result that is produced. The result of God being faithful and righteous is found in Aphes Hemin Tas Hamartios. Aphe is the aorist active subjunctive form of Aphiemi. Aphiemi. Get Aphiemi. Which means to send off. Okay, that's the word that's been translated as forgive. Okay, not necessarily improperly. I'm just, literally means to send off. As an active verb, it identifies that the subject, who in this text is God, is the one who sends off and is sending something off. We need that something to find out what that is. Efe is also subjunctive, which identifies the possibility of the subject to send off. Therefore, God has the possibility to perform the action to send off something. That something is tas hamartias, which is the sins of the believers. So because of God's faithfulness, or God's God being faithful and God being righteous, he has the possibility, because of those things, the result of that is he has a possibility to perform the action to send off sin. This both describes him as the, the judge for sin. He's the one that's righteous. He's the one that's faithful. Therefore, he gets to dictate and send off sin and cast it out. But also as the one who, um, because of his righteousness and because of his, or because he is righteous, because of his faithfulness or being faithful, getting all sorts of different words thrown out here, because of these things, that in the life of a believer, he is the one that does it. 
So because of his character, because of who he is, the result is that he has the possibility to perform the action to send off sin. The grammar of the original language identifies that tos hamartios is the direct object of the verb. This makes the sins of believers the focus rather than the believers. So in other words, God's not sending off believers or forgiving believers. He's forgiving the sins of the believers. He's sending off the sins of the believers. Keep your brows forever for just a little bit. We'll get to difference between two words that are translated as forgive and it'll make a lot more sense in just a few slides. In other words, John is identifying that God has the possibility to forgive the sins of believers rather than sp stating that he's got the possibility here to forgive believers. That should have already been done once they believed. They've been forgiven. But here we're focusing on the sins of the believers, the individual acts which they get their feet dirty in, in their walk. If Hamin was in the accusative form, then it would be the direct object, Hamin being the reference to us, but it's not. It's in the dative case, or dative block of instrumental, which identifies that, we're the, that the sins belong to us. It's actually the indirect object, the sins being the direct object for those English majors out there. <coughs> if this were the case, then John would be identifying that believers need forgiveness for each sin they commit. However, since this is not the case, John's identification is that, this, that the sins need forgiveness, not the believer. Again, this leads us to understanding the difference between for the two types of forgiveness um, in Koine Greek. So, because it's not talking about believers being forgiven by a fae, or being sent off by a fae, uh, and talking about the sins, John here is talking about the sins being sent off, not the believer being sent off. <coughs> yes, we're getting there. John is identifying here that the believer is not in need of forgiveness because of sin, but that the believer's sins are in need of forgiveness. It's an interesting concept. It will get, it'll make sense in just a little bit. This harmonizes with the doctrine of positional truth, which identifies the believer as holy and blameless, immediately following their dependency upon Jesus as the Christ. It also harmonizes with Jesus' teaching regarding the cleansing and washing of an individual in John chapter 13, 5-15. In other words, because a believer is forgiven, and the penalty for sin has been paid. They don't need to be forgiven again. Their sins need to be sent off, sent off. This is where we start seeing the, the beauty in the harmony of God's word right here. And in fact, this is the slide that caused me to write that on my Facebook status for all the world to see. Or for all the world to have the possibility of seeing. We're going to throw the subjunctive mood into Facebook. The possibility is there. Subjunctive and probably a little delusional, <laughs> but that's all right. <laughs> it's not like I haven't been called either of those before, so. <laughs> all right. You've been called subjunctive. I called myself that once. <laughs> um, maybe we should take that break now. No. Anyone need a break? Okay. Insults are better if you insult the person know what you're saying it's twice as insulting that way <laughs> i'm not actually saying that it's good i guess insults are worse if more insulting. not that i'm saying you should do this <laughs> okay and this is not a part of our study tonight with the exception of the word antinomian but if someone cuts you off on the road rather than getting all angry with them and calling names and whatnot if you do that you shouldn't be doing that i don't do that personally I think it's like weird to do that. I don't yell names or anything or anything like that. I might call him a moron, but that's biblical, so we're good for that. That's a different study. You're either God's moron or the world's moron. Get over it. 
First Corinthians. I'd like five sentences, I don't know. If someone cuts you off, you can call them an antinomian because they're not following the rules. I actually called one of my supervisors that one time and she didn't know what I was saying. And we actually kind of laughed it off because she wasn't following the policies we had said. And I kind of jokingly called her that, but I kind of deep down meant it. I was really frustrated with her. So again, I'm not saying that that's right or that's not sinful. I had to confess that. But so, so watch the mindset with it. But it's kind of fun to call people antinomians because they're like, huh? Just, just don't do it to angry, angry drunks. Just, just for reference. Okay. I think we just took that break. All right. So, so this concept here that John is identifying that the believer is not in need of forgiveness because he's already been forgiven is harmonizing with the doctrine of positional truth, that you're in Christ, you're holy and blameless, that your sins are imputed to Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you. So the record shows that you're clean, that you're not in need of forgiveness or to have the penalty for sin paid again. It also harmonizes with what we learned last session with John chapter 13, verse 5 through 15, about the complete cleansing and not being to, not needing to be completely cleansed again, and then the washing that if your feet get dirty because of your walk, you need to once again have the feet cleansed through this process that we are identifying. Okay, to adequately understand this concept of forgiveness, the two main Greek words for forgiveness need to be briefly explored. Aphasis is the word we get for pardon. Okay, it's a noun. And it's it's the concept of being, your freedom being granted from an obligation. So we, we typically see that word in, in ter, like court terms, right? Now, if you receive the pardon, you're not going to have to pay the penalty for your sentence, or you're not going to have to live out your sentence or carry it out. Um, so it's a reference to the act of granting freedom from obligation. Now, afiemi, which is a verb form, means to send off literally. It's an act of purposeful, certain sending off of an object, or sending of an object away from the presence of someone or something. Praise God that he doesn't do this to the believer. Because if he sent us off because of sin, we would need a Savior again. And I'm not sure that we can get one again under the current system that he's set up. Because if we've accepted Christ as our, as our Savior and then He sends us off because of sin, we are now sinners, children of God, holy and blameless, but sent out of His presence. And that's a problem theologically. Praise God, He doesn't use the accusative term to identify us. He uses the dative. He uses the accusative term to identify the sins. The sins need to be sent off. They need to be sent out with an act of purposeful, certain sending of those sins away from the presence of someone or something. In other words, in your relationship with God, these are sins that need to be, be removed. God is the one that acts and does this. A lot of times people fail to come to God because they feel like they're not clean enough to approach his throne or to approach him. It's God's God to cleanse us. Okay? Every time we have that concept of getting rid of sin or being made spiritually mature, it first starts with us submitting to God to allow Him to do it, not us. There are certain aspects where we are to participate in getting rid of certain things within us. But that participation is as far as it goes. And it's, depending on the context, it refers to um, you participating in the sense of allowing God to take care of it for you. Um, where we have a list in Galatians about letting the Holy Spirit get rid of these things within you. That is actually participate in the action of allowing the Holy Spirit to get rid of these things. And the way we do that is through submission to the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And not grieving the Holy Spirit, um, but listening to Him and allowing Him to direct and get rid of things that we need to not have in our life. So you've got these two different words for forgiveness, and they're translated as forgiveness. Um, there is a third. It's translated very very infrequently, 
and it's not really a part of this paradigm, so I didn't really bring it out. These are the two major ones. Mm -hmm. They are two different words. They sound very much alike, with afe being, well, one's aphasis and one's afiemi, but you've got that off kind of concept. The a, the a doesn't have anything to do with it because that's just a negation. Okay, it just means the opposite or not this. Um, so with these words, when we understand that the sins need to be sent off and not the believer again needs to be pardoned, we start to understand that because of the righteousness and the faith, faithfulness of God, that he has kept us free from sin, but is just merely removing them from our walk with him. It's a beautiful thing. John doesn't use the term for pardon in reference to the believer being pardoned by God for his sin upon, its, upon that sin's confession, but rather John identifies that as a result of God being faithful and righteous, the sins of the believer are sent off. Because of God's, God being faithful and righteous, the sins of the believer are sent off and not the believer. The believer is not in need of pardoning once he has been pardoned. However, the believer's sins do need to be sent off in order to restore the partnership between God and man once more. Any questions on that? So it's because God is faithful, faithful and righteous that the sins are pardoned, are sent, sent off, off. Not, not us. Yep, because he is, the result of that is that our sins are sent off. He's, and that, that shows that he has the authority to do it, one, and that um, if he was not faithful and righteous, if he wasn't faithful to us, he would say, yeah, you did that, dude, it's on your own. you got to deal with that, you know. But because he is faithful and because he's righteous, and his plan says that when you sin and you confess it, I will send that off. I will cleanse it from you. So that leads to the question of what happens if you don't confess? Okay, we're going to get there. Does that answer your question? Okay. It's beautiful. Honestly, it really is beautiful the way it's written. So look at verse 6 of 1 John chapter 1. It says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Again, this is referencing our experience or our walk with God. And then 2 Corinthians 6.14, you know, this, this verse is and isn't out of context. I'd say it is because this is really a reference to being unequally yoked. You know, the verses don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever or engage in, partner, in a partnered fellowship with unbelievers because light and, fellowship have no, or light and darkness have no fellowship. Um, it doesn't make any sense for us to marry into, or enter into a relationship where a spiritual being can not discuss with a non-spiritual being. In other words, if you're saved and the, and the um, significant other or the other person you're trying to fellowship with is not, you've got a trichotomous human being and dichotomous human being, you will have conflict forever. It will just be there. But this is not being unequally yoked, and it's referencing that concept that if you're not in a relationship with a spiritual being, you have a problem. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't sign up for the same path together. So I, I say that because that's the part that's kind of out of context with it. But the designation that darkness and light have no fellowship is within 1 John 1. Um, this is a little bit more. Darkness is symbolic in scripture of sin and or separation from God. So that lack of a spirit is a sinful concept. Darkness has that symbol, symbolism throughout scripture. In order for the believer to be restored to fellowship with God... His sin needs to be sent off. God can have no part with sin. We already found that out in the, in the Garden of Eden. He has already been pardoned, the believer has, and released from the penalty of sin because of his faith in Jesus Christ. But when his feet get dirty, they must again be cleansed in order to have fellowship with God. Because God is faithful and righteous, he has the possibility of sending off the believer's sin with certainty. John also identifies a second result of God being faithful and righteous. 
through Kai Katharizo or Katharise Hamas. The use of Kai as a logical conjunction connects the sending off of sin and the cleansing of believers as an equivalency. In other words, you've got an equal sign between God sends off sin and God cleanses the believer. They're equal statements. They have equal value and weight in the in the Greek text. Now, both acts are the result of the same thing, the righteousness and the faithfulness of God. And they have equal value in the sentence. And thus we should treat them equally in our life as well. Um, cleanse is translated from the word katharise, which means to purify. Like afese, or afe, it is an aorist active subjunctive verb. And this means that God is the one who performs the action to purify and that the possibility of him purifying exists. This is, again, partly where we get the concept that it is not our job to purify ourselves. It is our job to allow God to do that. God is the one who purifies. He's the one that sends out sin in our life. The reason we fail to purify ourselves is because we cannot do it. That's why we try, and that's why you get in Romans 7, where Paul says, I've tried to do this. I've said I've, I've purposed in my heart not to do this, and I find myself doing it. That struggle we face with our sin nature, the struggle we, we talk about in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, about following our lusts and the desire that, that is set on the trap waiting for us. Um, the only way to avoid that is to understand that God is the one who takes care of that in us. We don't take care of ourselves. We couldn't do it for salvation. We cannot do it for this life. Faith for salvation, faith for living. It's the same faith that does both. God is the one who performs the action to purify, and the, the possibility of him purifying exists through this subjunctive form of katharizo. Katharise hemos apopases adikaios. God has the possibility of purifying believers apopases adikaios, which means literally that God has the possibility of purifying believers away from all unrighteousness. That phrase sends chills down my spine. We can be purified away from all unrighteousness by God. He doesn't say when. This is not talking about saving. It's not talking about washing or the complete cleansing. In fact, the word that we have say isn't even in John chapter 13, verses 5 through 15, as the, one of those two words. We've got niptice and leluminos. Leluminos being the one that deals with the complete cleansing. Niptice being the one that deals with the partial cleansing. This isn't even the same concept through this word. Katharise is that purification process to remove impurity from something. So again, we're not talking about salvation here or the luminos, the complete cleansing. We're talking about the purification of that which is saved, i.e. spiritual growth. The use of the aorist tense with both afe to send off and katharise to purify is critical in understanding what John is identifying in this verse. The aorist tense identifies a snapshot event, whether past, present, or future. It summarizes that event and looks at that event as a single memory or action in a point of time. How many of you guys remember Polaroid cameras? They still have them. But I'm talking the ones that like, you took the picture and then the little thing like shot out and you know, shake it, right? And then you found out, oh, we're not supposed to shake it. But it's like, do we shake it? Do we not shake it? And yeah, throughout the history of those things, no one really knew the, the real thing, I'm guessing. All right? So that Polaroid is a snapshot event. I've got one of me and my cousin in vacation Bible school at Creekside Community Church in Sonora, California. Yeah, it's technically Sonora. It's more like Phoenix Lake. When we were like five or six, we didn't even go to that church, but I've got this picture of us at the vacation Bible school with our arms around each other holding up the craft that we made or whatever it was that day. That's a snapshot that is etched in that Polaroid and thus in my memory because of that Polaroid. That's the concept of an heiress. It's a snapshot event. It records not just that moment in time, but the occurrence. 
So, I mean, you could have like Jesus walking or Jesus being on earth. When we talk about Jesus uh, in the, or God in the flesh, that's his whole life on earth as one snapshot. You see what I'm getting at here? Or we can talk about Jesus feeding the, feeding the 5,000. That's a snapshot event. So it could be the, an expanded thing with lots of different things in it. It's fun. Or it could be one, one thing that's represented in one moment in time. So it can be multiple ones in time or one thing, but the concept is that it's a snapshot event. Um, it summarizes the event and looks at the event as a single memory or action in a point in time. Okay, here's how we would show it on the timeline. A dot. Okay. Not a line, because a line is that like point in time that is like just one little point in time. This is a snapshot. Okay. It can be a point in time, it can be multiple points in time in one moment, but it's singular either way. Much like a Polaroid photo captures an event, the Eris tense identifies an action as a point in time or an event that occurred in time. The snapshot events of sending off sin, of sending off sin and purifying the believer, both are snapshot events, are dependent upon the believer's confession of sin. In other words, if we confess, God does this. He remains right, faithful and righteous whether we do or not confess. But when, if we confess, he is, his faithful and righteousness produces the result that he sends off our sin and purifies us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is where we start mixing up positional and experiential. Is that a lasting purification? It is, until we sin again. And then we have to confess again and go through the whole process where God then again cleanses us and sends off that sin. The believer is already pardoned for his sin by God, but because sin is in the believer's life, God must remove it from the believer in order for God and the believer to have fellowship. God sends off sin and purifies the believer from his dirty feet. Now we have closure, if you will. We have harmony again. The restoration of the two partners in the work that's to be done. With the entire verse in view, we get this. If we confess our sins, God exists being faithful and righteous, the result of which being that he has the possibility to send off our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. The word possibility is dependent now upon us confessing. Possibility exists because he's faithful and righteous. But whether he will or, or whether he does or doesn't is dependent upon our confession. Throughout our life and our day, maybe we will confess our sins, or perhaps maybe we, 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 we will not. <laughs> or perhaps maybe we, we won't. But if we do, because God is faithful and righteous, he will send off our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Until we agree with God on the matter of sin in our walk with him, we remain out of fellowship with him. We choose to confess our sins. God sends them off and purifies us from unrighteousness. If we choose not to confess our sins, we remain out of fellowship with God, a spiritual being operating carnally, sin being in our life and creating impurity within us. Little leaven leavens a whole lump. The process of foot washing then exists being, one, identification of known sin within one's walk with God, two, mental affirmation and agreement that the known sin is sinful according to God's viewpoint, three, use of the volitional property of humanity, our free will, to speak that agreement to God, to speak that agreement to God through prayer in complete harmony with His specifications. Number four, honest and genuine accomplishment of these three steps leads to restored fellowship with God by God, not the believer, allowing God to send off sin and purify the believer until the next trespass occurs, till we walk again where we ought not to. Spiritual growth and spiritual understanding of the doctrines of God is impossible outside of the scope of fellowship with Him. However, academic knowledge may be obtained. Again, though, spiritual understanding is impossible outside of fellowship with God, according to Scripture. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians, 
uh, Galatians, there's a number of passages which refer to the same thing that basically say if you're not a spiritual being or you're not operating spiritually, you cannot understand the mysteries of the doctrines of the Word of God. It's a mystery given to the church. Those who are members of the church have to be in fellowship operating according to the Spirit in order to do that. You want to be filled to, uh, filled to the point of control or saturated to the point of control by the Holy Spirit, you must be in fellowship to allow that to happen. Spiritual growth, um, Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2, to be actually transformed as Paul commands, has to happen. In order, this fellowship has to happen in order for that to happen. Believer must be in fellowship with God in order for transformation to occur. If we're not in fellowship with God, we're in fellowship with the world. If we're in fellowship with the world, we're being transformed and um, conformed to it, rather. If we're in fellowship with God, we're being transformed by the reading of the Word. That is a study that someday we will get to. Fellowship is broken by sin. Whether that sin is disbelief in God's word or character, known or unknown volitional sin, our choice to either rebel um, actively or passively, because disobedience is rebellion either way. Whether we actively or spitefully do it or just kind of fall into it. It's still disobedience and still uh, because of our free will. Or sin is any number of mindsets which erroneously assert personal sovereignty. The reason we sin is because we assume the throne for ourselves. We disbelieve God. We disagree with God on what sin is, on who he is, and on the value of that act or that mindset or that thought process. This is kind of our ultimate category of the types of sin. We've got mindsets. We've got uh, volitional, uh, active, or passive um, disobedience, unknown disobedience. That's the one that gets me. I mean, I don't mean that's the one I sin by. <laughs> that's the one that, that we have a God We have a God that even holds us accountable for the unknown thing that we do. So how do we confess those things? Well, here's the deal. If you know you're out of fellowship and you're supposed to be in fellowship, you can confess being out of fellowship. How's that work for you? The part that we didn't get to, uh, or didn't talk about really, is this concept of all unrighteousness. He sends off the sin and cleanses us, purifies us from all unrighteousness. That point that we confess the sin, if it's an action of rebellion, we'll be restored immediately to fellowship with God until we sin again. If it's a mindset, we have to confess the mindset and change the mindset prior to that confession. That's that part number two, mental affirmation and agreement. That's something we do in ourselves. We have to affirm that it's sin and agree with it as sin before we actually change it. That the, the mindsets are the ones that get us most of the time. We know when we've done something. But when we're thinking a certain way, and we know and, and we've been taught we shouldn't, but we don't necessarily know how our thought process is working or that we're thinking in that thought process. That's the one that's going to stick us most of the time. This is the one that human viewpoint permeates through. In other words, when we are out of fellowship and we think that we're in fellowship because we're doing the right things, you know, we're serving, we're in the church, we're doing all this kind of stuff that God would have us do, but we're outside of that relationship that he's given and provided us to be in, our mindset keeps us out of fellowship. So, there's so much to teach. Um, sorry, that was very whiny. <laughs> forgive, forgive my whininess. <laughs> All that to say is that whether our fellowship is broken by known sin or unknown sin, we're going to have to deal with it personally, internally, and say, this is what God says is sin. Do I agree with that or not? Remember, God's faithful. God is righteous. He conforms to his own standard. If we know who he is, we will be far greater and far, it will be far easier for us to choose to submit once again to him through confession. This confession very much is part for us dealing with the fact that we've asserted authority over our own lives. 
and said that, God, you said this, sin, this is sin, but I'm going to do this anyway because I want to. We are now competing with the sovereignty of God. We don't compete. We think we are, but it doesn't, doesn't even compete. God is truly sovereign. Nothing can compete with him, not even free will. <clears throat> this is God's standard, and we will fail. In his grace and because of who he is, we are able to be restored to an active and growing relationship with him, one in which we are dependent upon him to cleanse us, to teach us, and to grow us in accordance with his plan, <coughs> including the purification that we need of the sins that we walk in after we've accepted him as our, uh, his son as our Savior. 1 Corinthians 2.9 quotes a verse um, from Isaiah, I believe, chapter 65, that kind of is, is almost just weird if you read it. But listen to what it says. It says, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered, entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. It almost doesn't make a complete sentence. It, if, it, it kind of doesn't really feel like it does, at least. But it's identifying that if we will just walk in fellowship, we don't even know what God has in store. But that he has prepared things for those who love him. And how, who are those who love him? But those who keep his commandments. 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John pretty much covers most of that. Um, Jesus said it himself in, in um, I think it's John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Remember, Jesus is God the Son. He is God. How do we love God? We keep his commandments. How do we keep his commandments? We know who he is. When we sin, it's because we forget who God is, and we choose to become gods ourselves. Those are our 70 slides for the night. Any questions?